I'm turning this morning to Hebrews chapter number 7. Hebrews chapter number 7, and we'll be looking this morning at verses 19 through 24. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 19 through 24. As we continue this exposition of the book of Hebrews, of course, we have covered a great amount of material. We've covered uh, some very deep doctrine. We've covered some uh, very important practical implications, uh, not only for the Jew, but for the Gentile alike. And in chapter number 7, beginning in verse number 19, uh, we begin to see, uh, we won't necessarily call it a summation or a conclusion of all that the writer of Hebrews has to say, but it certainly begins a summing up process of determining where now our hope is found. I want to deal with the subject this morning, which comes directly from the text, uh, quite simply, a better hope. A better hope. Now, we'll, we'll go through this really just verse by verse this morning, and I'm not going to give much of an introduction other than the very first verse. The very first verse we'll deal with is verse 19, which tells us this. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. This law made nothing perfect. Now we've been dealing with the realities primarily of the Levitical ceremonial law. Now we don't want to separate this so much that we lose sight of the entirety or the totality of the law that was required by God's people. But the Levitical system was given in it by a means in which man, sinful man, was able to see Jesus Christ typified in its shadows and its pictures and in its sacrifices. In other words, there was hope uh, in the Levitical law. There was hope in the ceremonial law, but it was not a hope that could be depended upon for all of eternity because it was going to fail to do something that we're actually going to see being revealed this morning. What it did not produce is it could not produce a perfect state. It could not produce perfection that would allow a sinner to stand before a perfect God. With that being said, the Levitical law, the priesthood, could not do what was most desirable for a sinner. The great desire of the sinner was that they would be able to have access or be able to draw near to God. Man could not be reconciled completely and perfectly to God through the Levitical system, but rather needed a better hope. Now, we, we have to be careful that we don't label the law as bad. Uh, sometimes we, we get the wrong impression that the law was bad and that the law was there and it was kind of just there, but we, now we need to put it away and ignore it. The law in and of itself is good. The law in and of itself was given for a purpose, and it was given in order that man would be directed and guided to what he or she needed. But uh, we do have this division where people tend to say, you know, I'm so glad that old law doesn't apply anymore. I'm so glad the old law is gone because it really was not any good. That's not accurate. The law actually is good, and within the law that was given to God's people, through the Mosaic law primarily first, there was hope found in that because it was a system in which man could find 
a forgiveness of sins, even though it had to be repeated every year. So we can't say that the law was hopeless. But what we can say, and what the writer of Hebrews says, is that there was a better hope. There was something better than the hope that the law was bringing. So we understand that what the law could not do for man was it could not fully and perfectly reconcile man to God. It did not make a perfect atonement. It couldn't put away the guilt of sin. In a simple phrase, it could not restore things to the condition that they were before the law was broken and man became a sinner. When Adam sinned in the garden, that law was broken. Law was broken there. And in order for us to be able to stand before God one day, we have to be placed back into a state like we were prior to the fall. There has to be the removal of not only the sin, but the removal of guilt. The law in and of itself couldn't do that. Not because there wasn't any good in it, but primarily because man could not hold up to what the demands of the law were. Man could not hold it up. Now, this does not mean that every Levitical priest who served in that holy, the high priest, was doing a poor job. Uh, There were priests who were observing and doing exactly as the law and exactly as the priesthood commanded. They were going into the Holy of Holies. They were following all the procedures for the ceremonial cleansings. They were washing their hands properly. They were receiving the sacrifices correctly. They dealt with their own sin before they dealt with the sins of the people. And in, in the human sense, they fulfilled the requirements of what the law and what the priesthood required of them. Like anything else, there was humanity involved, which means there were times when the priest was not all that he should have been. However, what the writer of Hebrews has in mind here is primarily, what does it require for man to be restored back to the condition before he actually broke the law? We have to understand this because there were people, undoubtedly, who before Jesus Christ came in the incarnation and before Jesus Christ ministered and died and went to the cross, rose again and ascended, there were certainly people that were saved. There were certainly people who were converted. So what were they converted on the basis of? They could not look to the cross because the cross had not yet happened. Don't get the idea that people like Abraham or Moses were looking at the cross when they were converted. They had no idea what the cross was. They had no idea that the Messiah was going to go to a cross, but they were hopeful of a coming promise of a Messiah. So what did the value of the Levitical priesthood have is it was intended to show through the shadows, the types, and the pictures to show them the hope that was coming of the promised Messiah. So in effect, it was good. It gave some sort of hope. But the writer says that a better hope is needed. If man was converted in those days, he was not converted by the efficacy or the effectual nature of the giving of the lamb's blood, but rather he was saved by the effectual working of that which the sacrifice was typifying. Is everybody following that? He was not saved by the sacrifice of the lamb. He was converted by what it was typifying, the Messiah that would come. Very important to keep in mind what types are and why that matters so greatly. (coughs) 
So what it says there in the second part of verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but the beginning, the bringing in rather of a better hope did. Or we might say, but the bringing in a better hope was. This was something that as the bringing in of this better hope came in, now we have what was lacking. We now have access to God. The law in and of itself could not affect access, and it could not, in effect, allow us access. Why? Because it still left us guilty in our conscience. It still left our sin perfectly atoned for. So now the writer is introducing us to a better system, something which allows man to approach God. In order for a man to approach God, that man must be reconciled to God. God is not reconciled to man. Man is reconciled to God. God doesn't become like us. We have to become like him. In other words, the reconciliation needs to take place with us to make access with God proper or even possible. So what this is saying is he's not saying that there was no hope before. Notice what he says. It's a better hope. It's a hope that is founded upon a more sure and a more certain expectation. What is the expectation now? What is the certain hope? It's what was introduced by the complete revelation of Jesus Christ. What Christ is now showing them is a better foundation for hope. If I was to say, which is the better hope? The hope that laid in the Levitical priesthood or the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, which one is better? The hope in Jesus Christ is better. It doesn't mean that the law didn't have some hope in it. It's a comparison between the better hope. Remember, even Paul did not deny the importance of the law. He never once said the law didn't matter. He didn't say, you know, we can disregard all that because that's Old Testament stuff. He never said that. He said it had a purpose. And the purpose was to point to the shadows and the types and to typify the better hope which was to come. This better hope is Christ. It is a better means of obtaining the divine favor than the law could ever do. The divine favor of God. Now notice he gives the means in which this happens. He says, by the which, okay, that's a connecting thought. So the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which, or this is the means, this is the conduit, this is the, this is the road that it travels. Here's what it does. It we draw nigh unto God. So that is this reconciliation. That is this bringing of this hope, this better hope. Our ground of hope is furnished by the gospel. We can now be reconciled to God and we can approach him with assurance. The Old Testament saint could not have that full assurance of the, uh, their sins being atoned for because their sin had to be atoned for every single year. But he, he shows us very clearly here. We draw nigh unto God. To draw unto nigh, nigh unto God means we have access to God. Paul wrote a little bit about this in the book of Romans chapter 5, if you want to turn there. Romans 5, let's just look at the first three verses of that chapter. Really, 
um, the means in which Paul was writing to the church at Rome. And again, this is what's been part of the controversy over who is the author of Hebrews. Was it Paul? And some say it's not. And we've taken that position that we're, we're referring to the writer of Hebrews as the writer of Hebrews. You might have a different position, and that's okay. Now, Romans 5, verse 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, we understand here that what the writer of Hebrews and what Paul was saying here is he's saying that it is through this better hope that we are now invited, but also have a certain access and an assurance of reception into. I have an assurance that I have been accepted and I can and I've been received into God, into Christ. Back to what the writer in Hebrews was saying, he was saying the the means which brought this was the bringing in of this better hope. So, Paul writing about the same scenario here, about how that access is, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, if you go back to Hebrews 7 and look at verse number 20, all this is going to form one, one continuous thought. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. Now, now he gets back into the specifics regarding the priesthood of Christ. In other words, he's been talking about, okay, here's where your access came from. Here is where the law failed in that it, it could not make people perfect. There was hope in it, but there's a better hope. The better hope, which is in Christ, allows us to draw nigh to God with assurance and with certainty. And then he begins to give the grounds in which this matters. And he says, by inasmuch as not without an oath. In addition to every consideration we've had in the first six chapters of this book, remember the main theme has been the superiority of Jesus Christ's priesthood. I keep repeating that every single week because remember the intent of the writer initially is to show how Christ is the superior priest. If you lose sight of the superiority of Christ, you're going to lose track and you're going to lose your way like you lose your way trying to find your place to a destination. You have to keep this in mind. The superiority of Christ is what all of this hinges on. The superiority of Christ was also marked by the reality that there was an oath. This oath is what set Christ apart to the office of priesthood. The appointment of a person into the office of priest by an oath was happening in the case of Jesus, whereas with the normal Levitical process, as they came and they lived and they died, the order was simply the next one in line would step up and they would continue and carry on the process. But Jesus' priesthood was based upon an oath. Now, it's interesting that we find this being mentioned in the book of Acts. If you'll turn to Acts 13, it's, I wouldn't say it's an unlikely place to find it, but it's, it, it makes us kind of stop and take notice for a moment that why does this oath of a priesthood uh, show up 
in the book of Acts. And it's not random. And of course, we would really need to read all of Acts 13 to get the full context here. But Acts 13 verse 39 says, And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wander and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the congregation was broken up, Many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then Paul, said, Paul and Barnabas waxed bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should first have been spoken to you, but seeing ye put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now this kind of gets into what we've talked about in the previous weeks where the Jews should have been the first recipients and the first understanding of this priesthood. They should have understood it because it was part of the first oracles of God. Yet in the book of Acts, there is this acknowledgement that you turned away from that. You turned away from that which you should have known. Now remember, all the way back in Hebrews 5, the issue at hand was they did not understand the priesthood of Jesus Christ and his superiority, which is what was leading them to go back to the old ways of Judaism, believing that Judaism could put them in a reconciled, complete state, which it couldn't do. So even in the book of Acts... They're dealing with that same issue. And you can see the response of the Jews is that they were, they were angered by this. The writer goes on and says, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldest be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And you keep on reading on, and you'll find out that the Jews stirred up people to raise a persecution against Paul. So this oath is what now the writer of Hebrews continues on. So he says, here's the difference. The difference is the priesthood of Christ was confirmed by an oath, whereas the priesthood of the Levites was not confirmed by an oath. And because the oath is there, now we need to know who made the oath, and who is the oath guaranteed by? Because now we need to understand an oath is an oath, but who's guaranteeing the oath, and can that person hold to what they are promising to do? Notice again verse 21 in Roman, or Hebrews 7, and you'll notice this is in parentheses. With regard, for those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the writer of Hebrews says in verse 21, those priests, those Levitical priests, 
were made without an oath. They were set apart. They were consecrated to their office without being confirmed with an oath or on the part of God. Many of those priests received it by regular descent, regular genealogy, regular line. When they arrived at a suitable age, when they arrived at a place when they could serve as the high priest, they entered into that course. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus received his appointment, his office, by special appointment. It was confirmed by an oath, an oath that was given by God himself. That's why that verse in Psalm 110.4 that he makes, he's quoting there, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110 verse 4 we looked at last week being uh, uh, quoted there. Remember, that was an oath that was made between the Father and the Son. And the Lord swore or said, I will make you a priest. That's the oath. That's what's at the heart of what's happening here. This word rendered oath is also what can be referred to as a swearing of an oath. Okay, so with this oath, the Lord Jesus Christ became priest with a confirmation or based upon the virtue of an oath given by God. God said it will be, and he swore, and he will not repent. In other words, he will not regret that decision, nor will he change it. That reference is directly back to Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. He will not regret. He will not alter his mind through regret. You know, when we talk about repentance, sometimes when we see the word repent, we think God goes through the same sense of repentance that we do. God doesn't regret anything that he does, and he doesn't alter what he did and say, you know what, I should have thought this through. But what he's saying is, he's saying that I am not going to regret and I'm not going to alter, I'm not going to change my confirmation and my appointment by oath, the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which means it will be in effect and will stay in effect and it will not end. Remember, every Levitical priest had an ending. They, they died. A new one had to be entered into. The only oaths that were taken by the priest was that there was an oath that they would take among them that they would continue to do as was required by them, but they could not make an oath that they would be an everlasting priest. In other words, they couldn't say, I will always be the high priest. All they could say is, I promise to observe the priesthood requirements. Jesus Christ is not just about the priesthood requirements. It is the fact that he is the everlasting priest, which means it's unending. It does not have a time when it's going to come to a conclusion. Again, one continuous thought. Verse 22, by so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. So in the same regard as an oath is more solemn or more fitting than an appointment. The writer of Hebrews gives us one more point of security. He not only says, as Jesus' priesthood been confirmed with an oath made by God himself. Now, that alone in our humanity says that should be enough. God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You all heard that old saying? God said it, I believe it, that settles all of that. Well, he goes on one step further and he says, Jesus was made a surety 
of a better covenant. It is the idea of an additional security that's found in the surety ship of Jesus. Him as a surety arises out of the confirmation of the oath. Because the oath was confirmed, Jesus was confirmed as the surety of that oath. It's not just being implied here that this is guaranteeing that God would not be true to his promise, but the argument here is rather derived from the idea of speaking among men. This is the way men would better understand what he was saying. Again, so don't don't make this out to be that uh, God is always swearing to do right, but rather he's using the language for us to understand in our humanity. An oath is regarded as being much more secure and sacred, right? When it is also confirmed or um, acknowledged by a further sense of security, which is the surety. Notice what it says. Inasmuch or by so much was Jesus made a surety. Now this word surety is interesting. Now You'll find it in other parts of Scripture. You'll find it in the Old Testament. And you'll only find it in one other place in the New Testament. And it doesn't mean the same. When you find it in the New Testament, you find it with regard to Peter's deliverance out of prison. And he makes a comment where he says, I know of a surety that I will be delivered out of the hands of Herod. That's not the same word. So it's interesting that only in the book of Hebrews is this word mentioned. It shows up in the Old Testament in the book of Proverbs. And we studied this a couple years ago, I think now, on Wednesday nights about being a surety for another person. When you act as a surety for another person, what you are doing is you are guaranteeing whatever it is that they're signing. You're basically saying, I'm good for whatever they're signing up, right? So you're basically saying if they default on their loan, they default on their deed or their note, I'm responsible for it. So it's confirmed in an oath, Jesus' priesthood, it's taken one step further with additional note of security that says Jesus was made a surety. So this word means, properly, directly means a bondsman. Or one who pledges his name, his property, or his influence, guaranteeing that a certain thing will be done. So Jesus was made a surety. So go back to that illustration of when a contract is made or someone takes on a debt or someone takes on some sort of other deed, a friend or a known acquaintance often becomes the security in the case that he himself who took on the debt, signed the contract, could not live up to the terms of the contract. So Jesus has made this surety. So if the person cannot comply with the requirements, Jesus is the one who actually is the security. He's the bondsman. Go back to thinking about the law. Man in and of himself could not hold up to the terms of what the law required in order to reconcile himself to God. So what this is, is that Jesus is now the security or the bondsman on the part or the, on behalf of man. He is the pledge that we would be saved. He's the pledge that we will be received. He is the bondsman that guarantees we will be accepted in the beloved. 
Again, I try to avoid using such human terms that we think about this because this is such a supernatural and miraculous thing that's taking place here. Jesus, so to speak, becomes responsible for the debt or for the requirements that we cannot live up to. So what you cannot say is that when you were saved, God disregarded the law. The law was very much still a requirement. The law today is still a very much a requirement. The guarantee is the surety that's found in Jesus Christ that was confirmed by an oath as a superior priest that he would be responsible to fulfill all the obligations of the law that you and I couldn't fulfill. So it's inappropriate for us to say, when we got saved, the law gets thrown away. No, the law got fulfilled by the bondsman. Because we couldn't, we couldn't pay it. We couldn't live up to the obligations. It is not, however, a security that we lean upon that we say, oh, that just means we can be saved at any rate and we don't have to live differently, we don't have to act differently. No, it still requires, and this is where this line comes, where people begin to say, well, I don't have to observe any of the law anymore. No, there's still this, there still is this desire and there's still this requirement. That's why we're given commandments to be holy. You realize be holy as I am holy is not an optional thing. It's not something that we're to look at and say, well, yeah, he says that, but I've got the surety in Jesus Christ. I don't have to live a holy life. You're not saved by works, but you understand that Jesus is not going to be the surety in some situation where man just says, all I got to do is just lean on Jesus, but then I can live any way I want with total disregard for the law. His suretyship extends to the very point that the law and its requirement has always been honored by him. He has met every demand. He's met every demand and that through his meeting of the honoring of the law and the meeting the demands of the law that we can be saved through it, through his obedience to the law even though we violated it, even though we continue to violate the law, he as our surety, and instead of the penalty that should fall upon us, the penalty for our disobedience to the law fell on him. So think about this for a moment. I came across this illustration, and I'm going to read it just verbatim because it will make it a lot clearer. He says, the case is this. A sinner becomes a true penitent or truly repentant and enters in heaven. It might be said that he does this over a broken law, that God treats the good and bad alike and that no respect has been paid to the law or the penalty in his salvation. Here the great surety comes in and says that is not so. He has become responsible for this he, the surety, the pledge that all proper honor shall be paid to justice and that the same good effects shall ensue as if the penalty of the law had been fully borne. He himself, that's Christ, has died to honor the law and to open a way by which its penalty may be fully remitted consistently with justice. And he becomes the everlasting pledge or security to law 
to justice, to the universe, that no injury shall result from the pardon and salvation of the sinner. According to this view, no man can rely on the suretyship of Jesus, but he who expects salvation on the terms of the gospel. The suretyship is not at all that he shall be saved in his sins or that he shall enter heaven no matter what life he leads. It is only that if he believes, repents, and is saved, no injury shall be done to the universe, no dishonor to the law for this the Lord Jesus is responsible. So it's not that the law is just disregarded. It's not that man is just received with no real, everyone's the same, good and bad alike. They're only received as they deal and receive the gospel. Because the gospel says that Jesus Christ is the surety. He is the pledge. He makes reference in Hebrews 7 about, he uses another word, he says a better testament. Now it's interesting because this really, and in most other translations, it's actually listed as a better covenant rather than a better testament. Again, the former testament, the former covenant he's talking about there is the covenant God made with his people under the Mosaic uh, dispensation. But now he introduces or speaks of it as this better covenant that's made by the means of Christ. It's not that the law itself was bad. And it's not that the law should be disregarded. But he tells us in the very next verse, verse 23, he said, and they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Under that Mosaic dispensation, under that Jewish dispensation, the very object of verse 23 is to state one more reason why the excellence of the priesthood of Christ is superior. Because it takes into account the frailty of humanity. It takes into account the shortness of life. And it tells us that the office of priest, humanly speaking, was always changing. In Christ, there is no change. In Christ who has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father forevermore, he has an unchangeable priesthood. I mentioned this last week. Unchangeable doesn't just mean that it doesn't undergo uh, an outward change. It means that it's non-transferable. That means nobody else can ever occupy the priesthood that Jesus Christ occupies. That means if this world goes on for generations after we're gone, the priesthood of Jesus Christ will still be the priesthood of Jesus Christ. It'll still be him and only him. It'll still be through Christ that man is reconciled to God. And he will still be seated at the right hand of the Father and will still be making intercession for his people. It will not be transferred to some other prophet or some other God or some other person. Unchangeable refers primarily to non-transferable. It's not going to move on to someone else. It's a permanent office. And in verse 24, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable or untransferable priesthood. Because he remains forever, the idea is this, because he does not die, but he ever lives, he has this unchanging priesthood. There is absolutely no necessity for him to yield it over to another. The Jewish priest 
because they were mortal, because they were human, it was just yielded over whatever the time period was, however long that man lived. Again, it wasn't because they were not performing the office well. It was because of the reality, the frailty of their humanity. It could not operate in the same manner in which Jesus and his priesthood. This unchangeable priesthood. The idea is not, again, that it's not just unchangeable, but that it does not pass over into other hands. Folks, that's the key to understanding an unchangeable God. If the priesthood of Jesus Christ could change, if the priesthood of Jesus Christ as the mediator, as the intercessor, if that changed, again, I'm going to have to chew on this, God would have to die, eternally die. It can't change. It's non-transferable. The Hebrew writer has been using this Levitical priesthood to show us this beautiful picture of the stages of what's been happening and how that Jesus Christ now is this better hope. The reasoning here is not just simply designed to prove that the priesthood of Christ will literally be eternal, but that it will not pass hand to hand and there will not be another. That's the teaching. That's really what he wants us to get The priesthood is not going to transfer. It's not going to change. It's not going to switch hands. You're not going to find any other way that man can be reconciled to God other than through Jesus Christ. Which leads us into what we'll talk about next week where the writer makes that one of those great statements and ends this chapter. Wherefore, or as a result of what's been spoken to you, what's been said to you, here's what this means for you. He is able to save them to the uttermost. We'll learn about that next week. The uttermost doesn't speak of how how far it goes into the world. It speaks of saving fully and completely, which is the very context in which the priesthood of Jesus Christ, why that applies, because there would be no full salvation. There'd be no complete salvation without the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And that's, good. that's where we'll, be, we'll start next week and think about the beauty of that. Able to save fully, which the Levitical priesthood couldn't do. But Jesus Christ does. What a glorious truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful promises. And Lord, even today, myself included, we may not be grasping fully the beauty that is found in this text. And Lord, I pray that as we meditate upon it this day and in the days to come, that we would see the beauty that the writer is expressing through the inspiration of the Spirit that is giving us comfort today and it's giving us a great reminder of who we are and what we are in Christ. And we are certainly thankful. Thankful beyond words that Jesus Christ is our surety. He is the one who has perfectly fulfilled the law. He is the one that has met all the demands and continues to meet the demands of the law. The law in and of itself has not been done away with per se, but that we have he who has completed and fulfills the law perfectly, which allows us to rejoice 
knowing that we have been reconciled unto a holy, righteous God. Father, again, if there be anyone here today who has yet to repent and believe the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we pray today would be that day according to your will. May their eyes be open to see not only the reality of their own sin, but may it be open to see the reality of a Savior. May they be able and made willing to believe in this day. Father, may this be the day that they come to know Christ fully and surely. Thank you for entrusting us with the gospel. And may we be found faithful proclaiming and preaching it to every creature. We thank you for these things. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll conclude with.